So this morning, we're going to talk about the win-win scenario. The uh, Curry family, Dell and Sonia Curry, have two boys, and uh, they are absolutely brilliant basketball players. Steph Curry, their oldest, burst onto the scene at a very little-known college, Davidson College, uh, in the NCAA tournament when he took that very small school to the Sweet 16, uh, was picked up in the NBA draft by the Golden State Warriors, and he has had a stellar career. The younger brother, Seth, was then noticed, and he was recruited by Duke University and went to that basketball powerhouse, had a great career there. Um, and, of course, then he goes to the NBA, which was great. I mean, this family's kind of living the dream. Both of their boys are uh, NBA basketball players. But two years ago this month, in May 2019, the Currys faced a real dilemma. And that was that Steph, who was on a, an MVP trajectory that year and his Golden State Warriors, were in the Western Conference Finals, and they got matched up against the Portland Trail Blazers, and Seth Curry plays for, played for the uh, Portland Trail Blazers. And so all of a sudden, this family, uh, which, you know, they're watching this uh, develop, uh, they've, they've got a real dilemma. I mean, who are they going to pull for? And so a reporter asked uh, Del Curry, the dad, he said, uh, now, how are you dealing with this the first time they've ever been matched up like this? And he said, well, first of all, it's not the first time they've ever been matched up like this. They've played a thousand times in the backyard. It's the first time they've ever been matched up on global television, maybe, but not, not a, for the first time they've ever played against each other. He said, but secondly, here's what we've decided to do. Uh, Sonia and I are going to flip a coin. And one of us gets to wear a Golden State jersey and the other one gets to wear a Portland jersey. And that's how we're going to go to the game. And then he said this, because we see this as there's no way to lose. It's a win-win situation for us. One of our sons is going to go play for an NBA championship. It's just a win-win situation. You know what? Very few things in life turn out that way. There's very little of life that is really a win-win situation, that no matter how it goes, everything's going to be great. Most of life is win-lose. Let's just be honest. It doesn't, it doesn't maybe feel that way, but sometimes it, it, it's just life, that it's win-lose. If I win, you lose. If you win, I lose a lot of times. But you know the best relationships are win-win relationships. The best marriages are win-win marriages. If one partner in the marriage always wins, always gets their way, and the other person always loses. Let me just tell you, we're headed for conflict. That's just the way that works. In business, partnerships, if someone wins and the other one loses, we're going to divide the partnership after a while. If you make a transaction, if you say if you go to buy a car, it's my best example, and a couple of days later you kind of feel like you got taken advantage of and they won and you lost, well, you might go somewhere else next time to look for a car. The fact of the matter is, win-win is not just the best way to live, it's the only way to live successfully. And the Apostle Paul said spiritually that same thing is true. Because the Apostle Paul is going to give us in our passage this morning his definition of a win-win scenario. And the win-win scenario is this. He says these words, For me to live is Christ and to die is is gain. Whether I live or I die, I win. If I live, I win. I live for Christ. If I die, I win. It is gain. Now, Paul is sitting in a prison in Rome. 
He does not know how his situation is going to turn out. He was charged with being essentially an enemy of the state in Jerusalem. Those charges were trumped up. And he shipped off to Rome because he appealed to Caesar, the highest authority in Rome. But Paul didn't really know how that was going to turn out. Now, he has a confidence that probably because he knew that Caesar was going to say, oh, this is just a religious dispute, let the man go. But he didn't really know because it kind of depended on what mood Caesar was in that day, whether you got a fair trial or not. So he says, I don't really know how this is going to turn out, but here's what I want you to know, that no matter how this turns out, I'm going to be okay. Everything is just fine with me. Listen to how Paul describes this and some lessons that we can learn. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, the verses will be on the screen. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, he's going to continue to talk about that. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul's going to share with us how we can live with a win-win attitude. And here's what he says. If you're going to live with a win-win attitude, the first thing you must do is there must be a wrestling between two worthwhile ambitions. Both of your ambitions, both of the things that you're kind of looking at have to be worthwhile. And Paul said, here is the way you can know that both of your ambitions, that both of the scenarios, whichever way it goes, is worthwhile. He says, first of all, for me, to live is Christ. For Paul, everything about his life pointed to Jesus. Every conversation, every transaction, every relationship was permeated with Jesus. Everything about his life pointed people to Jesus. For us, every job, every friendship, every social engagement, every investment ought to be lead us to honoring Christ in what we do. You say, well, Bob, that, that, you know, Paul was a missionary. That makes sense for him, but that doesn't make sense for me. You mean I have to like give up everything, quit my job, sell my house, and move off to Peru and be a missionary? No, not unless God calls you to do that. But let me say this. If God were to call you to do that, it would be worth it. Jesus is worth it. His obedience to him is always worth it. But no, I'm not saying that you have to be a missionary. But what I am saying is this, that every moment of your life ought to be lived on mission. That every moment of your life ought to be lived in a sense that I am living it purposefully to bring glory and honor to Christ. That everything that I do is to honor him is to point people toward him, is to find a way to communicate the gospel story with those who are far from God. Well, does that mean my life has to be all serious all the time? No. You can have a hobby. Just use your hobby to honor Christ. 
you certainly can have a job. We all got to have one of those. Just use your job to honor Christ. Now, some of you work in places. Some of you have government jobs. Some of you have other regulations on you, like you can't talk about your faith openly in a classroom or something like that. But let me tell you what you can do. If somebody asks you a question about, why are you joyful when the rest of the world seems to be, you know, Eeyore? You can tell them. You can always answer a question. And so Paul is saying to us that to live is Christ. It's fruitful labor. It's meaningful, joyful labor that reaps a harvest. It's fruitful. And an eternal harvest, something happens that I'm going to take to heaven with me. Whether it's playing with your kids this afternoon or sitting around a table at your business or meeting with your friends for dinner some night, to live is Christ. It's to honor him in everything and to point people toward him. But to die, that's the other worthwhile alternative. To die is, and the Philippian audience must have just been stunned when there is gain. Now, in every culture in the world, to die is loss. Now look, I've been a pastor for 30 years and I have two advanced degrees and I have studied most world religions, most of them, especially the major ones. I, I'm sure there's some fringe stuff out there that I've never heard of, some wacko something, you know. But I mean, the, the really big ones, I've studied those. And I'm going to tell you this. There is only one religion in the world, one, in which the answer to the question, that, that sentence can be finished, to die is gain. And that is biblical Christianity. That is gospel-centered, Jesus-focused Christianity. That is the only system in the world that ends with to die is gain. That it's better. And so Paul is saying, here's the win-win. If you live, it honors Christ. If you die, you go to be with Christ. You see Christ. And so to live is Christ. To die is gain. Now, occasionally, I think the Bible gives us some good fill-in-the-blank stuff. So I, what I would ask you to do is fill in the blank. If you were to be honest about your life, to live is fill-in-the-blank. What would you fill in that blank? But then whatever you've put in the first blank, the second blank has a corresponding word. To live is blank. To die is fill in the blank. Let's give me give you an example. To live is money. I want money. I, I, I want financial security. I, I want I pursue everything in my life is to is to accumulate wealth and possessions. And somehow I think I find security in that. To live is money. To die is to lose it all. In 2020, 17 billionaires died with an, with, an, with a, an accumulated wealth of over 50 billion, with a B, billion dollars. The richest was a Brazilian banker. Do you know how much of that 50 billion dollars they left behind? All of it. Every single dime. One of those billionaires was a guy by the name of Sumner Redstone. Sumner Redstone 
built the media conglomerate that is Viacom CBS. He was a control freak and he lived for building his financial empire. In 2007, he famously said to a group of Boston University students that he was a guest lecturer for, uh, when a question was posed to him, he said, I'm in control now and I'll be in control after I die. Well, in 2016, his daughter formed a group and forced a hostile takeover of the company and removed him as chairman. He wasn't even in control before he died, but after he died, he certainly wasn't in control. To live is money. To die is to leave it all behind. To live is fame. To die is to be forgotten. Flame is fleeting. I mean, it's just here one moment, poof, it's gone. It's like smoke. To live is power. I want power. To die is to lose it all. To live is beauty. I mean, we spend, we spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of money on, on this. We do. To live is beauty. To die is to rot. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> I want you to think about, though, what would you put in that blank? I just gave you a few examples of maybe what other people might live for. What would you put in that blank? But there's only one way to finish it with the word gain, and that's for Christ to be in the first blank. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. He is wrestling between two worthwhile ambitions. But he's also wanting. You see, there is one of those two that is preferable for him. There's one of those two that he's desiring. Look at verse 23 and you see that he's wanting to be in the full presence of Christ. He says in verse 23, but I am hard pressed from both directions. He says, I just feel like I'm in a vice having the desire to depart and to be with Christ. You see, he tells us what, if he had his choices, here's what I want. Now, all of us in, in a scenario where we have a choice like this, there's something that we would want and something that we would say, okay, that's still a win. Paul says, okay, here's what I want. I desire to depart. That word depart in the language of the Greek New Testament that Paul is writing this in is, a, is sort of a, a, a familiar word to a lot of these people. When Paul uses it, they knew that it was kind of a euphemism for death. You know, most of the time when somebody dies, we soften that expression. Like we say things like, he passed on. He kicked the bucket. And maybe that's not softer, but, it, but, we, we, but we don't say he's dead. You know, it, it, you soften it a little bit. Well, that's what that word depart does. It just kind of, it's a euphemism. It kind of softens it. But it had three common usages. The word to depart literally means to loosen. And it used of, used of sailors when a ship was tied up to the dock, they would loosen the ropes so that the ship could sail to its new destination. It was used of soldiers when they were in the battlefield and they lived in tents. And when they received the, camp, the command to break camp, they would loosen the ropes on the tents and fold up their tents to go to another to another place. It was used of farmers 
when they would say have a, a team of oxen and they had a yoke across the oxen's neck and they would pull a heavy load all day long or pull a plow all day long or, 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 or use that oxen for, for some purpose where they had a burden. At the end of the day, the farmer would loosen the yoke and take it off the neck of the animals. And in so many ways, that is a picture of what happens to us. When we depart, we go on a journey just like that ship and we go to a new place, a more permanent place. Just like those soldiers, the Bible says that this earthly body is a tent. That's all it is. It's, it, it, it's temporary housing for your spirit and you're going to get an eternal home. It's a house, not built with hands. But this body is a tent. At death, it's just kind of folded up. This tent is. And at death, the burdens of this life, all of the responsibilities, all of the cares, all of the, the feeling that we have so many responsibilities, all that's lifted off of us. And Paul says, I desire to depart. But I want you to notice what he says about his departure. Because death isn't just a departure. Death is an encounter. I desire to depart and be with Christ. Notice what Paul didn't say. He didn't say, I desire to depart and walk on streets of gold. I believe that stuff. But that's not what Paul was looking forward to. Paul said, didn't say, I de desire to depart and get my mansion in heaven, which you're probably not going to get. There's one big mansion, Jesus said, and in the Father's big house, there are many, many rooms. But a lot of people thinking they're going to get their own personal mansion, live all by themselves in, in, in heaven. Not going to be the case. Paul didn't say, I'm looking forward to the crystal sea or the see the gates of pearl. No, that's not it at all. What Paul wanted was to see Jesus and to be with Jesus and to fall at the feet of Jesus and to worship Jesus and to thank Jesus for dying on a cross for him and being resurrected from the dead so that he could spend eternity with Jesus. For Paul, it's all about Jesus. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. And we get caught up, I think, in a lot of the peripheral about heaven and the next life. And those things are great, and I believe many of them are absolutely true. The description in the book of the Revelation, it's absolutely true. But here's what I want you to know. The picture of heaven in the Revelation is also of a lamb at the center of the throne. And the lamb has been slain. And he is the only one in which all of these multitudes of people fall down on their faces and cry out, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. It's all about Jesus. I get people asking me, are we going to be able to play golf in heaven? Can I go fishing in heaven? Is my dog going to be in heaven? The spotless son of God came and gave his life and died the cruelest death possible and bled on a stake in the ground and gave his life for yours. And your first thought about heaven is, is Fido here? I don't think so. I don't think so. Your first thought, if and when you get to heaven, is where is Jesus? Because that's who I want to see. That's who I came to see.
He's all about Jesus. Paul does this over and over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He talks about the return of the Lord. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. It's all about the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, he talks at that passage where he calls the body a tent. And we're just going to fold it up one of these days and leave it. Here's what he says in verse 6. Therefore, always being of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Look at this, verse 8. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. I want you to get this. If you don't leave here with anything else, just get this. Heaven's main attraction will be Jesus. He's at the top of the billing. He's the headliner of heaven. A few years ago, well, closer to 30 now, um, the greatest basketball team of the NBA was the Chicago Bulls. In the 1990s, hands down, best basketball team. I think that they win six or seven championships in the, in the 90s. Just an incredible basketball team. And they were an almost impossible ticket to get uh, in Chicago for their home games. But what was even more remarkable was that for almost the entire decade, they were the number one road team in the NBA. Everybody wanted to go see the Chicago Bulls play. I can remember the Dallas Mavericks were terrible, and I went one night down to Reunion Arena trying to get a ticket to see the Chicago Bulls play. I go up, and I'm a seminary student, okay? I'm, I'm a poor seminary student, and I go up trying to find a ticket. I'm going to sacrifice and pay that, you know, $30, $40, $50 dollars to sit in a nosebleed and, and watch the Bulls play. And I couldn't even come, I couldn't even sniff a ticket. I mean, they were scalping tickets. There were tickets, but they were $400, $500 a piece. All I got, I'm like, I'm out of this game, you know, it's too rich for me. But here's something interesting that happened. You know, they had a player that retired the first time. And the next year, you could get Bulls tickets. You could really get Bulls tickets. Because they went from the number one road draw to the listen to this to the 29th in a 29 team league they were 29th in road attendance they didn't help the home teams at all do you know why because Michael Jordan retired nobody was coming to see the Chicago Bulls we were not Chicago Bulls fans we wanted to see the goat we wanted to see the greatest who had ever played the game the greatest to ever lace up a pair of Nikes we wanted to see Michael Jordan because he was the attraction when you get to heaven it's not all the peripheral stuff it's going to be the attraction it's the goat the real one the greatest of all time and his name is Jesus that's Paul's desire he says I want to, de to depart and to be with Christ. And then he says this, for that would be, this is the way it renders literally. It's interesting. For that would be much more better. That's not good English, is it? It's not good Greek either. It's really, it's really written in improper Greek. But he, Paul is saying, I am so excited about going to heaven that I'm just going to write this in improper language so you understand my emphasis. That would be much more better. 
We soften in English to very much better kind of get the, the gist of that with not making it grammatically incorrect. But Paul is so fired up about seeing Jesus. But he's also not just wanting to be in the full presence of Christ, but he's willing to persevere to serve Christ. He's willing to stay here. That's win-win. If I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's gain. I would prefer the going on to heaven thing. That'd be great. I'd be relieved of my responsibilities here. I'd be in the full presence of Christ. There'd be no more beatings. There'd be no more imprisonment. That's what I'd prefer. But he says, however, he says in verse 23, I I am hard pressed from both directions having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. Yet, To remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. The word necessary there is a word for a moral imperative, something that just must happen. And Paul says, what I see is that what really must happen is I must stay on in the flesh, not for his own good. He's already told us it'd be better for him to leave, but for the good of others. One of the marks of maturity is putting my desires on pause in order to meet the needs of others. You think about a baby. It's Mother's Day. Think about a baby. A little baby never puts their needs on pause. They're immature. If they're hungry, they cry. If they've got a poopy diaper, they scream. They do not put their needs on hold, on pause for anybody. But moms, moms could be in the middle of preparing their own dinner and that baby cries and they put their needs on hold. They put their needs on pause. That's a mark of maturity. Now, I know it's also a mark of love, but it is a mark of maturity to put your needs on pause for the greater good of someone else. And Paul says that is why I'm willing to stay. He says, if I stay, it would be for your benefit. It would be for your sake in verse 24. And he says, two things will happen as a result of that in verse 25. He says, I'm pretty convinced of this. I know that I'll remain and continue with all of you. Now, we don't know how he knew that. Maybe it's just kind of that inner feeling of I know that I know that he's writing about here. But he says, I'm going to remain for your progress and for your joy in the faith. Your progress in the faith, your spiritual growth, your advancement in the faith, and your joy in the faith. There's that word again. We see it over and over and over in the book of Philippians. Paul does not say, I'm going to stay for my joy. He says, I'm going to stay for your joy. I want to serve you. Here's what Paul is saying. I'm willing to put off going to heaven if I can help somebody else go. I'm willing to put off the joy of meeting Jesus face to face if I can introduce somebody else to Jesus. I'm willing to stay here and suffer. I am willing to endure hardship if it means more souls go to heaven someday. I want to ask you this. Does that characterize your life? Paul says that his life would be fruitful labor. What what does that mean? Well, in the Bible, fruit, he he talks about fruit being Christian character. 
But he also talks about fruit being the people that he won to Christ. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about people he's won and that he calls them the first fruits. People who've come to faith in Jesus through his direct witness. He talks about in 2 Corinthians how that the, second, the church at Corinth had borne good fruit in their giving to the kingdom, in their, in their using their resources to advance the gospel, to build up the church and to make sure that Jesus' name was proclaimed. That's fruitful labor. That, that's fruit that remains. I want to ask you something. How much of your life is characterized? How much would, of your life would you describe as fruitful labor for Christ? Now, we're all going to labor. We all got to work. Everybody's got to have a job. We've all got one, right? If you don't work in that <clears throat> work, like there's work at house, at the house. There's work to do. But how much of your life, and those things are necessary, but how much of your life would you describe as this is fruitful labor for the kingdom of God? What I'm doing here matters, and it's going to matter for all eternity. Paul says, that's what I want to invest my life in. And I want to challenge you. That's what you ought to be investing your life in. Now, that can mean investing your life in your family. That can mean investing your life in the people that you love who work for you, investing your life in, in your church, investing your life in, in other causes that advance the gospel. But what is it that you're doing that is fruitful labor? I can tell you this since you're in this room right now. It is not God's will for you to go to heaven today. It's not. It's not God's will for you to go to heaven at least right now. So if it's not God's will for you to go to heaven today, then it is God's will for you to do something that matters. It is God's will for us to invest our lives in ways that advance his kingdom, that spread his gospel, and lift up his church. It is. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Now, there is only one way for you to make that statement. And that's if you've received what Jesus did for you. If you've asked him to come into your life to be your Lord and Savior, there's only one way. Stefan Thomas is a German computer programmer. In 2011, he created a video for the cryptocurrency Bitcoin that described what it is, tried, tried to explain it to people, to make investments in it. At that point, he was given 7,002 Bitcoins as compensation for making the video. It was worth at that time, at about $2 a piece, about $14,000. Today, 10 years later, Stephen Thomas Bitcoin, the Bitcoin has just accelerated in value. Each Bitcoin is worth about $60,000. That means that his initial payment of 7,000 Bitcoins worth $14,000 is now worth about $400 million. There's only one problem. His Bitcoin account is secured with a program referred to as Iron Key. Some of you know what Iron Key is. 
It is one of the most ironclad, secure password programs in the world. It is unbreakable. And with Iron Key, you only get 10 attempts to enter a password. And if you enter it wrong the 10th time, it is permanently and forever locked. Stefan has entered eight passwords. They were all wrong. You see, he lost his password. He has two remaining attempts. He has access to $400 million worth of Bitcoin. $400 million. But he doesn't know the password to get there. You have access to the riches of the God of heaven. But there's only one password. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for my friends in this room, many of whom could look back and say, I know for absolute certain that I've given my life to Christ, but I don't know that I'm using my life for Christ. And so I pray for those in this room who need to really evaluate some things about the way we use our time or our talent or our treasure so that we could write over our lives to live is Christ. Lord, I pray for those who need to take seriously what you're calling them to do with their lives. I pray, Father, for young men and young women that you are calling to serve you. You've placed your hand on them. Lord, By your spirit, would you convince them that Jesus is worth it? That he is worth abandoning all of our pursuits and ambitions and goals and he is worthy of following after. I pray for those in this room though who have never trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior that this would be their day and their moment to turn from sin and to give their lives to Jesus. I pray that this would be the moment when they would confess Dear God, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. But I believe that Jesus died on a cross to pay my price. And I believe that he was raised from the dead so that I could have the gift of eternal life. Jesus, I give you my life freely. And I accept your eternal life from you. Lord, I pray for those who need to make a decision like that, that this would be their day that they would not put it off until tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.